Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, We don't have any guests today, but we have so many things to talk about. You know, uh, it was the 4th of July holiday, and I think, like, on Monday, you know, we were all just sitting around, uh, just lazing about, and you were like, what are we going to talk about? And I was like, I don't know. And then by by today, (laughs) there's a million things to talk about. It's been kind of crazy. So the first thing I'm going to do, I'm naming the segment Announcement Palooza. We have had three people in Louisville uh, declare their candidacy for federal office, so we're going to go through all three of those. Jasmine is then going to talk to us about uh, a big CRT hearing in the in the legislature and an interim committee that happened this week. I'm going to be talking a little bit about fundraising in Louisville's mayor race, which was released just this week. Then Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about some lawsuit things that happened, I think, like uh, simultaneous to when you were doing the actual show last week. So we're going to catch up a little bit there and then also uh, hear some new things as well. I have a very quick COVID update and then we have one quick hit so with all of that to get to let's get right to it and let's talk about announcement palooza so jasmine two kentucky democrats declared their candidacies for u.s senate last week and john yarmouth now has a democratic challenger so the first candidate we want to talk about is probably the one that you know the least about and that is ruth gow ruth is a louisvillian who appears to own a business that helps people find the best college that suits their needs i'm not totally sure what their business model is or what they do but that's what it says on their Facebook page. She's never been a candidate before, but she became the vice chair for her legislative district in this year's party reorganization, and she says she wants to be part of a, quote, new generation of leadership. Miss Gao announced her candidacy on social media and was met pretty quickly by scandal around her leadership position at Sojourn Church in Louisville and her employment at Chick-fil-A. So both of these organizations have long-standing policies, which many, and I would include myself in the many, uh, consider to be homophobic and generally anti-LGBTQ. We haven't heard much from the candidate herself in a public setting, so we don't really have any additional context or explanation for her associations except for what we've seen already. And, you know, you can take that for, for what it is. So, so Jasmine, when Ruth Gow announced her candidacy, had you ever heard of her before? No, I had not. Yeah, me, me either. Um, and and uh, what is your general impression, first impression, about Ruth Gow as uh, she's now a declared candidate for U.S. Senate on the Democratic side? I guess I'm just wondering why she wants to do it. She announced, and then there hasn't been anything said about issues she cares about or anything like that. Everyone quickly found out a lot of information about her, which you think you'd want to get out ahead of if you were running for office. And I'm just kind of confused, I guess. I think that's totally fair, Jasmine. My... I have no, I have no evidence to back up this theory. Uh, so take it for what it is. But it, it, you know, she came out with this social media post that said she's running for Senate, and it got tens of thousands of likes. You know, and, and lots of engagement. Uh, I think there was the same sort of situation on the Facebook side, um, and, and that's kind of the hallmark of like a consultant that might be working with you. I don't know if there's like somebody out there who is a consultant who's like, I can help you raise money and then you can give me that money and then you can lose this race. Um, But that's a potential hypothesis that like it's a consultant driven candidacy and kind of a quixotic person who wants to run for office. I don't know. Uh, This is brand, brand new. And, you know, who knows? Maybe next week she'll come out with some sort of impressive policy statement where we're all going to be like, wow, 
what an impressive candidate. But I will have to say, uh, as of right now, um, there's a lot of work that she needs to do uh, before I start taking her too seriously. Uh, another thing that happened last week that we're not going to talk about, Jasmine, is I was elected to the Democratic Party's Central Committee, uh, the State Executive Central Committee. So I actually am not uh, supposed to, to uh, give preferences during for any of these races. So take everything I say um, with a grain of salt. You know, I'm trying really hard to stay neutral. Um, I, I think all Democrats are great and should uh, run for office if they want to. So. <laughs> That's that. Uh, so that's Ruth Gal. That's probably enough to talk about Ruth Gal. Um, the two other candidates that we wanted to talk about are much, much bigger deals. I think uh, the, the the other Senate candidate that we wanted to talk about is Charles Booker. Um, so several months after announcing an exploratory committee, Charles Booker made it official by announcing his candidacy at the African-American Heritage Center in West Louisville. He came out really strong. Several hundred people showed up to his announcement. And he said, quote, I know for a fact we will blow out Rand Paul. Unquote. So, so Rand Paul's first few days with an opponent haven't been great. Uh, he sent an email claiming that Booker was part of the racial left, which I don't know what that means. It's a very weird term, and I don't think I like it. And he also said that, quote, the only thing he's heard so far is that Booker is for defunding the police, unquote. So, uh, you know, I think very clearly that's the race he's trying to run to make it just about these buzzword hot button issues on the right and not trying to engage seriously with any of the major issues that Charles Booker is trying to raise. I mean, Charles Booker has been known for lots and lots of issues. He was one of the leading voices for the insulin campaign. Uh, you know, the, the, the maximum price for insulin that uh, was passed through the legislature last year. That was his bill um, that, that got carried along with uh, Danny Bentley in Eastern Kentucky, the Republican. So he has a record of bipartisanship that led to good legislation. Um, he's been, you know, forefront on, on lots of environmental issues and lots of other issues. To, to, so to say he's j- just for defunding the police is is incredibly reductive and a little just insulting, I think. Um, what do you think so far about Charles Booker's launch, Jasmine? I guess it, it's been like a slow walk launch. This was just the official announcement. We've known that he's running. We kind of know what his platform is, what he stands for, how he campaigns. This was just making it official to me. But I'm glad that a lot of people showed up for it. I agree. I, I, you know, this is a long election cycle for Kentucky, you know, having it's it's six months or so until the filing deadline. And, you know, we already have two candidates that are running for Senate. So we have, you know, a year and a half until the actual election, I think, um, which which is long for Kentucky. Usually here, the old rule used to be that the general election didn't even really start till Labor Day. We are going to be talking about this race for more than a year. Uh, so that's kind of a new territory for us. But, you know, it takes a lot of money to do these things. And I think Charles Booker did what he needed to do to raise the money he needed to run a good race. And I think that that's probably the reason that the timeline is what it is. Best of luck to Charles. And, you know, best of luck to Ruth in this as well. So two candidates on the Senate side. I agree with you, Jasmine. Uh, this is not surprising news on any level. Uh, we kind of knew that Charles Booker was, was going to do this for quite a long time. And uh, here it is officially. The next one, the third the third candidacy, was a little bit of a surprise to me. We have talked about it before, but Attica Scott, Representative Attica Scott, declared that she was going to run against John Yarmouth for Louisville's third congressional district, the, the U.S. congressional district in Kentucky that, that encompasses most of Louisville. We talked a few weeks ago about how she was thinking about this race, and she decided to throw her hat in the ring. Phil Bailey has a tweet thread from Tuesday that I think sums up what many people are thinking about her candidacy. A quote from that thread says, I can easily see Attica Squat winning 25 to 33% in a Democratic primary and running heavily on liberal social issues. 
especially subjects John Yarmouth is rusty being challenged about. But that swings both ways, and no one has really asked about Scott's effectiveness as a legislator or her fractured relationship with other Kentucky Democrats and some grassroots activists, least of which being Breonna Taylor's own mother, unquote. Leaving that there, Jasmine, uh, what, what do you think? Is, is this a sentiment that you agree with? Do you think that his percentage targets are, are what you would expect? And, and what do you think about, you know, Bailey's uh, assessment of uh, Atticus Scott's strengths and weaknesses there? I think that's a really good assessment of what's going on here. I think as far as the percentages go, I think that's maybe on, I would say it might be the low end of Philip Bailey's estimate. So I'm thinking think like 20 25% at the most. But yeah, I, I think that everything he said is fair. I think that at least today, you know, we didn't see her attacking Yarmouth at all or saying anything about him really. And I think that's probably what she's going to do. I think according to Philip Bailey, she went to him first and told him that she's going to run. And so I think, you know, she's not trying to run like a really negative campaign against him. I think she's running on, hey, we could have better representation. Yeah, so I saw that I saw that tweet that Philip Bailey said about the phone call and then later, a couple of hours later, he had to walk that back because he said that Yarmouth said that she didn't call him. So I think that yeah, I mean Clearly, this is just going to be a very awkward race. I, I think it yeah. puts everybody in a very awkward position. Attica Scott's, you know, this is, and we've talked about Attica Scott doing this. You know, she won her seat in a primary. Uh, she beat an incumbent uh, Democrat in uh, in her seat originally. You know, Charles Booker has done this. Josie Raymond has done this. This is not something that's unusual here in Kentucky or nationally. And I mean, you can go back and listen to our show from a few weeks ago where we went through like why she might want to do it. But, you know, I, I don't think that this is at all unusual. But, I mean, she's forcing the issue. She's saying, I'm I'm going to get out front and center. I'm going to challenge you. Uh, I'm going to try to try to make this happen. So that 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 is what it is. Uh, so one other thing that's interesting about this, Jasmine, is that Attica Scott deciding to run for Congress means that she'll have to give up her seat in the legislature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this happened with Charles Booker when he ran for Senate in 28, uh, 2020. But we're going to have a race to determine her successor, and I think that that's going to be a really interesting race. In addition, like, the the district currently runs from, like, the west end to the east end, so it has, like, some west end neighborhoods, and it goes all the way to Crescent Hill in the east end. And Attica Scott actually replaced a white state rep from the east end when when she ran originally. However, I think that, you know, this district could get redrawn. We are going to get new maps. I will say maybe we will get new maps by 2022. That's something that the legislature has to determine. And that could have been a factor in why she decided to to run for this race instead of her house seat. Because I don't know how they're going to split that up. Are they going to put all of the West End into one district? So, you know, Reggie Meeks, Atticus Scott, and Pam Stevenson then have to, like, fight over one seat if you just draw that district vertically. Are they mm-hmm. going to try to create two and inclu- incorporate some of the, you know, middle downtown or parts of the U of L campus or something like that um, in those districts? Or how the Republicans draw these maps, which they have total control over, looking into how that might go, might have led to why Atticus Scott made the decision that she did. 
so that's that's kind of where we are. I, I think Attica Scott's going to have a really tough time beating a popular incumbent in John Yarmouth. And, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that John Yarmouth has worked really hard to be attuned to the district. He came back. He comes back all the time. He spends time working here. He was at a lot of the protests last summer. You know, he had his Black Lives Matter shirt on and he was holding a bullhorn during a lot of those protests. He was out there doing things. And I think a lot of the other incumbents across the country who have fallen Pray to primary challenges of candidates like Attica Scott did not, not have a similar relationship in their district. So that's to say John Yarmouth is probably a better candidate than a lot of those other people who were picked off in in those uh, in, in those primary challenges. Attica Scott, obviously a, a good candidate herself, is going to run a good race. So we will we will see what happens. It puts a lot of people in a really awkward spot. I, I think it's good if you have uh, multiple options that, that you're excited about and happy to vote for. Um, I would much rather be in that position than having two really crappy people that I didn't know who to choose between. That's that's kind of where I'm at with that. One like last final note about the Senate primary, too, is that Rand Paul has already made like missteps. I talked about his weird email about the racial left and saying he only knows about the, the defund the police is his only issue. The fact of the matter is, is it's just really hard to win as a Democrat in Kentucky. And uh, uh, Charles Booker is very confident. He clearly says we're going to blow out Rand Paul. But a Republican can say stuff like the racial left and say stuff like uh, he only has one issue and defending the police. And it really won't matter too much, I don't think. It's going to take a much bigger race by uh, Charles Booker and much bigger missteps by Rand Paul for this to, to come to the Democrats column, which isn't to say it can't happen. It's just very hard. Things could be really weird in 2023, you know, if Charles Booker and Attica Scott both have uphill battles in these races, and if they both were to lose, that's, you know, two of the most popular, like, political figures in Kentucky not in office in 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing. They're forcing the issue. They're putting it front and center. And if you do that, that's a big risk. I, I think that that will feel a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. You know, two very popular black Democrats here in mm-hmm. Louisville that, that aren't in office. Um, but but I just think it's a function of them, you know, swinging big uh, and good yeah. for them. That that That's, that's kind of where we're at. So, Jasmine, all right, that's that. Tell us about CRT. Okay. So the Interim Education Committee met on Tuesday to discuss critical race theory. And it was a really packed meeting. Media were sitting on the floor. You know, we've talked about these school board meetings the last couple weeks and how there's been a lot of people at the school board meetings to speak out against CRT. But this one was some anti-CRT folks, but also a lot of KEA folks. So... Yeah, I saw a lot, of, a lot of red shirts there, for sure. Yeah. So we've mentioned this on the show before. Two CRT-related bills have been filed, um, one by Representative Matt Lockett and one by Representative Joe Fisher. I say CRT-related because neither bill actually uses or defines the term critical race theory, but... They keep K through 12, and one of them even keeps college educators from discussing either formally or informal discussions about certain concepts around race, sex, and religion. So CRT is not in the bill, but that's what all this whole discussion seems to be about. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not in the bill, but everybody kind of knows what it's getting at. And Yes. Um, yeah, there you go. So some, some quotes from... 
yesterday's committee meeting, Representative Lockett said CRT is simply identity-based Marxism. And he also insisted that CRT is being taught, even though it's not in the curriculum. And he also didn't really offer any evidence of it being taught, although he kept insisting that it was. (laughs) And a lot of buzzwords were used by Representative Lockett and also one of the bill's co-sponsors, Jennifer Decker. Like They were talking about cancel culture and left-leaning media, and they were just throwing out all the words there. yeah the, the the trigger words that make the republicans yes. like foam at the mouth uh they're they instead of discussing any like substantial issue even though uh, we'll get to that for sure so right representative lisa wilner said that she's heard a lot of talk about critical race theory for a bill that doesn't even mention it and she said the goal seems to be to want to ban discomfort but you know unfortunately that's not really something we can legislate The House Democrats in the committee also put out a joint statement and said, forcing our schools to sanitize or erase large portions of our country's history will hurt students, threaten Kentucky's economic success, undermine local control, and put the accreditation of Kentucky colleges and universities at serious risk. JCPS Superintendent Marty Polio was there, and he spoke, and he was... (laughs) He was trying to express to people that critical race theory and equity efforts are not the same thing. And also that equity is not new. You know, we have um, IEPs. Those are individual plans for students with disabilities. We have English as a second language classes. We've been making equity efforts for decades, was his point. Jason Glass, the education commissioner, also spoke and he kind of pitched a compromise that he said, you know, let's allow teachers to talk about these concepts listed in the bill, but let's make sure they offer a balanced perspective. A lot of people just like weren't wanting to hear it. I followed Olivia Croft's Twitter feed from the meeting and she shared that women were like scoffing at things that Marty Polio or Jason Glass were saying and, you know, making little comments on the side. And, and so they really just didn't want to listen. The, the anti CRT people that were there. Right. Jason Glass also talks about first amendment concerns and also students censorship. And he also talks about the risk of losing accreditation um, since Matt Lockett's bill, as written, does apply to colleges. And Lockett responded that that's like something that they're looking at. So I think there will probably be editing to his bill. Yeah. A, cu- a couple of teachers also spoke, including Representative Tina Bojanowski, who I believe is the legislature's only active teacher. A man from the America First Policy Institute also spoke and gave examples of critical race theory in the classroom, but not a single example was from Kentucky. Um, So the meeting was two and a half hours long. That's kind of how it went. I think that this is an issue that we're going to continue to see into this school year and into the legislative session, and that there will probably be editing to the bill but we're definitely going to see a bill in the next session i'm certain i I think you're i think you're right the amount of attention that this is getting does kind of seem like uh it's something that will be taken up i'm very interested to see how leadership republican leadership specifically deals with marking up this bill 
I think it's likely they take out colleges uh, because of the accreditation issue. I'm sure they'll put something in there to say, you know, you know, we want education to include equity or something like that. Like equity efforts have been ongoing for decades. We're not trying to deal with that or something like that. We're just trying to attack CRT. So basically make this bill somewhat meaningless, but attacking something that Republicans and conservatives are very concerned about for unknown reason. I, I mean, this this hearing is just kind of like. To me, it's kind of the liberal and conservative like dichotomy in a nutshell, where Republicans get their dander up about something that is nonsense, and you know Democrats and liberals are are working to just like try to explain what's actually going on. So you've got Lisa Wilner, uh, you know PhD psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, former school board member. You've got Tina Bojanowski. She's a current teacher. She teaches right now in a classroom. You've got the JCPS superintendent who, you know, is over the largest school district in the state. And you have Jason Glass, the education commissioner over the entire state. So all of these people are experts on the issue. They're explaining it point by point. Here's why you don't need to worry about CRT. Here's what this actually means. Here's the truth of the matter. Here's what this issue is actually about. And instead of like saying, oh, okay, we get it now. Thank you for explaining this to us. We're, we're in a place now where we understand what the actual issue is, and we're going to boil this down to what we actually care about. You see people attacking left-leaning media, and you see people attacking critical race theory or whatever the other buzzwords, cancel culture. Um, the point of bills like this is to enrage Republicans. I wonder if it won't enrage Democrats instead, because I think that this issue is very frustrating to people. Um, my friends who were at the the hearing yesterday um, lobbying, they, they left very frustrated and very angry. And I, I was actually on the phone with a member of uh, of the Kentucky legislature last night, and I was like, oh, what are you doing? And they responded, I'm drinking. So <laughs> so that's kind of where we're at with, with this. Uh, so, you know, that's the reason why Republicans are after this issue is to enrage their own base, and I wonder if it won't have the opposite effect. I just don't see, I see obviously it's catching on with a good number of people. The, the, the no left turn people, that's the organization that's fighting CRT, has been able to turn out a lot of people, especially in places like like Oldham County, and I'm sure if they go to like Boone County or Jessamine County or places like that, um, they're going to be able to have people turn out too. I just don't see this as a big, big issue across the whole state. Uh, it's just going to attack a small number of people and teachers, education professionals who are really the core base of Democrats in Kentucky. Um, it's going to it's going to have the opposite effect on them. So how this uh, issue develops is something to definitely watch closely. But Jasmine, I think you're right on in saying that it will be a big issue in the 2022 session. Yeah, it's just in reading like the live tweets from all of these school board meetings and this committee meeting. It's just so frustrating because the speakers are all speaking like as calmly as they possibly can. These superintendents and they're trying to define equity efforts and explain the difference. And the Republicans there are they're just simply not listening and they're leaving when the speakers try to engage with them or explain something to them because they don't want to hear it. Yep. So this is a super frustrating thing that uh, started small, but is really gaining traction, I think. And it is going to be a a big deal next year. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Unless, unless the issue loses steam nationally and the Republican Mm -hmm. leadership can just ignore it. We'll, We'll see though. We'll see what happens. 
Okay, Jasmine, the next thing I wanted to talk about was the Race for Louisville mayor had their first fundraising reports that came out. And the very unsurprising situation is that Craig Greenberg, who I think is probably the leader in the clubhouse right now, the favorite uh, with, with, you know, 18 months to go or whatever, um, he's leading the pack in terms of fundraising by a very wide margin. I think the fundraising piece is the thing that's the most impressive about his candidacy. His ability to get money uh, and and deploy it running is probably going to be the thing that, that is uh, the most impressive about his candidacy. So he was able to raise $450,000 in the first quarter from about 600 donors. That's more than Greg Fisher in his first run for uh, for, for mayor. And, uh, you know, I, I did a podcast with Jameson Cable of the Kentucky History Podcast about the 20, 2000 merger between Louisville and Jefferson County. And the anti-merger people said, this is impossible. It was impossible for us to win because the pro-merger people raised a million dollars. That was just an unsurmountable amount of money back in 2000. And, and now you've got Craig Greenberg raising $450,000 in one quarter a year and a half before the race. So that just goes to show you how much money in politics has increased over the past 20 years. Uh, and a candidate who's really good at raising funds like Craig Greenberg is really able to to put the pedal to the metal. 134 individuals gave the maximum $2,000 to Greenberg's campaign. There are uh, the the list of the people who gave the max is a really like a who's who of rich and famous Louisvillians. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, uh, G. Garvin Brown, who's the foreman of Brown Foreman, chairman of Brown Foreman. Uh, there are other Browns on the list who are related to G. Garvin and, and part of the Brown Foreman clan. William Yarmouth, who used to own Almost Family, he's also the brother of John Yarmouth. Almost Ta- famous. Almost Family. Almost Famous is a movie. Good movie. Oh, uh, but you, al- That's what you put in the notes. I, I so sure I did. I put Almost you. Famous. Uh, I did not mean Almost Famous, <laughs> but you should watch that movie. Uh, but no, Almost Family. Uh, that is, a, it's, uh, they did like, it's a healthcare type company. They do care. I don't, I don't exactly know what they did. I went in there once to do phone baking for John Yarmouth back in like 2008. So <laughs> that's my only connection to Almost Family. Uh, Todd and Karen Blue of Blue Ventures, another very large and well-connected uh, Kentucky Louisville family. They're typically Republican, though, so they're giving the max to to Craig Greenberg, a Democrat there. John Y. Brown the third, uh, former Secretary of State and the, the son of former governor. Barbara Sexton Smith, of course, who is his campaign chairman and uh, had been the fourth, the the Metro Council person from the fourth district in Louisville. Tim Shaughnessy, former state senator. Emily Bingham, a part of the Bingham family that used to own the Courier Journal, and many, many, many more. So he had a lot of people giving him the max. A lot of very rich and famous people in Louisville who gave him the maximum amount of money, um, and, and that's kind of where we're at. The zip codes that gave Greenberg the most money were 40207. That's about uh, he got about sixty eight thousand dollars from that zip code, and 402. 222. That's about $47,000 from that zip code. These zip codes are typically the places that a lot of the money uh, for political candidates across the state go to. That goes for both parties and uh, for any sort of state race. Like Rocky Rocky Adkins raised a lot of money from that those zip codes. You know, uh, you've got like Andy Bashir raised a lot of money for those zip codes. Adam Edelin raised a lot of money for the, from those zip codes. Matt Bevin raised a lot of money from those zip codes. That's where the money in politics comes from in Kentucky are these two zip codes. They're kind of like north, central, Louisville, Indian Hills area along the river. If you've ever been up there, it's beautiful one of the most pretty parts of the city and uh is one of the uh most difficult to attain places uh i mean i live next to 40222 so yeah that that's close to me but 
my zip code is just not as wealthy. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I mean, me either. I, I mean, I live in a, I, I live in a, a, a nice zip code, I think, but uh, not anywhere close to the, the niceness of, of some of those those places along the river. Anyways, uh, according to the Courier Journal, uh, which I have not actually seen the KREF reports, but the Courier Journal says that Tim Finley and Shamika Parrish Wright have raised between ten and fifteen thousand dollars each. Um, David James also released what will be his only report of uh, the election because he dropped out. He raised about $90,000 in contributions, including 13 max contributors. So the 40207 and 40222 zip codes that are very important to politics in Kentucky, David James only managed to raise about $5,000 from those very key zip codes. And that indicates to me that the money uh, in this state and in the city has has taken a side, and that side is Craig Greenberg. And, And, you know, even if uh, Councilman James had not had cancer and really had been able to, you know, push forward with his race. He would have struggled to 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 keep up in the money portion of the primary. And any person who's thinking about getting into this race uh, has to look at that and David James's inability to break through in a couple of zip codes um, and, and and say, well, maybe maybe not because how am I going to raise enough money if if those people all picked Craig Greenberg already? So. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the amount of fundraising that Greenberg has been very impressive. That's the type of thing that absolutely could intimidate anyone else uh, considering a run. But I do think it's like the most impressive part about his campaign. Um, you know, there are other parts that I think so far have been a little bit unimpressive, but we are ways away from any part of the race. And I think like people are like, where's your issues page? I'm like, what? It'll probably be there eventually. Uh, you know, <laughs> we are a ways away from this right now. They got to get uh, all their ducks in a row in terms of staffing, in terms of money. Uh, and then they can actually start talking about what they want to do. Uh, I don't know if that's the way it should go, but that's the way it typically does go. Um, so anyways, uh, a really, really good report for Craig Greenberg. I think he's coming away from this looking really good uh, going into the early part of this primary, but lots of time for anybody else to catch up. Yeah. I think I said a couple weeks ago when we talked about this, that I thought that Craig Greenberg had probably cleared out the field and you disagreed with me, but it's, that's a lot of money for anyone to make the decision to jump in. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I think it's the most impressive part about his his uh, you know candidacy so far. I still think that there's room for other people to get in. I, yeah, I think, I do too. yeah, and I think you know just because somebody gave two thousand dollars to Craig Greenberg, if another candidate comes up looks really legit, and a lot of these money people like them too, you know they can give two thousand dollars to multiple candidates. That happens all the time. You know, I think that that's the path forward being a really impressive candidate that makes a lot of these money people say, oh, I will give money to you as well. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, but I, I think, you know, getting all these people to give early um, it is a very impressive thing for Craig Greenberg. And of course, you know, if you do it right, you can have a groundswell of fundraising of, you know, small dollar donors that really lifts you uh, up. And, and that's something we've seen across the country with lots of different candidates. So that can be done too, but, uh, but, but that's something we will definitely see. All right, Jasmine, we have lawsuit stuff that we want to talk about. Tell us what we need to know about that. Yeah, these are all just kind of quick updates. So right after recording last week, Former LMPD Detective Joshua Jane's termination was upheld unanimously by the Merit Board. When I talked about it last week, the hearing was going on, but they hadn't made any decision. They were taking testimony. And this happened right after I recorded the show. Jane's can appeal this ruling by filing a lawsuit against the Merit Board in circuit court. 
And he said that he plans on doing that. So that's lawsuit quick hit number one. Right. Number two, I also mentioned in a quick hit last week that Lexington passed a ban on no-knock warrants. The bad news is that the police union fraternal order of police Bluegrass Lodge 4 has filed a lawsuit challenging the ordinance and has asked the court to grant an injunction to keep the ordinance from going into effect. Now, now this is not a step that the LMPD took in Louisville, is it? No, it's not. And their argument here is that they should have been able to bargain with the council about this ordinance and... The council's position is, no, we didn't have to consult you to to pass legislation, basically. Right. I'm not I'm not sure how strong the merits are of that argument. You know, I, I don't practice labor law, um, but I'm sure that's something that we'll keep an eye on. Number three, the new head of the Kentucky Parole Board has rescinded the serve out policy that we've been discussing on the show the last few weeks. This was a new policy that prevented the parole board from issuing serve out sentences at the first parole hearing. Right. Um, Robert, you mentioned that the governor was not renewing the contract of the former head. And so it may be moot. And that is likely the case um, with the lawsuit challenging the policy. There is, however, a lawsuit pending Um, where people serving life sentences have challenged the authority of the parole board to issue serve outs. So that's something that is is still ongoing. But I imagine that the lawsuit filed by um, the attorney general and Commonwealth attorneys is moot at this point. So the lawsuit that we have been talking about is probably moot, but there's another lawsuit around this that that may be making progress that probably we'll be talking about as this issue progresses, right? Right. Okay. Lastly, the Bashir administration removed the language preventing discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity from the Sunrise Children's Services contract. Um, so, you know, we've talked about this story quite a bit as well. And then after the Supreme Court ruling, Bashir went ahead and removed that language. He thought everything would be all fine and good because that's what they wanted. But now Sunrise has not yet accepted the contract and wants additional terms. So that's uh, another story that we'll be updating. Man, if you give a moose a muffin, right? Uh, that's uh, that's the lesson here. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that's also on the heels. I, I, I read that book. I have a 10-month-old daughter now. So, um, But I, I, that comes on the heels of that Supreme Court case that uh, basically decided that, you know, uh, they, they probably could have put the Bashir administration probably could have put, put up a bigger fight and say it doesn't it doesn't that ruling it's doesn't different. have right. it's distinguishable in some way right they could have done that but obviously I think they made the political call that it wasn't worth it any longer which is unfortunate I think uh, I, I do wish mm-hmm. they had put up a bigger fight there um, but you know I, I, I think I also am vindicated in thinking that because clearly like they're now pushing for even more so that's that's too bad. I don't know what. Do you know anything about like what else they're asking for? No, I don't know what they're asking for. Um, just the report that they're asking for additional terms, and so I don't know. And I know I wish that the issue had been pushed, but it's also really difficult to place children into foster care. So I understand why they didn't want to 
lose one of these services. Um, So I think it it is tricky, but I wish that it didn't go the way that it did. But, you know, at this point, Sunrise hasn't even accepted the contract. So Yeah, that's a good point, Jasmine. I I thank you for bringing that up because that's not something I think about, like the actual impact of like, there's kids that need to get put into foster home and there's people that need to be doing that. And if you lose one of the people that are actually doing that, there's a lot of kids that don't get put into foster care. So even though they're homophobic and gross, I mean, at least they're doing something that's good, I guess. So there you go. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't like go that as far to say like, that's good, but they are one of a lot of the providers that we have are faith based and they're, I wish we had more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not a very lucrative business to go into, I don't think, which is too bad because that means people aren't going to do it. All right, Jasmine, thank you for your lawsuit quick hits. Uh, I did want to give a short COVID update. Uh, you know, the governor has stopped doing that, but but we here at my old Kentucky podcast are not stopping. We're going to keep going. So last week, Kentucky had 1,359 cases. That's up very slightly from 1,186 the week before. Uh, there haven't been uh, a week-over-week up, uptick in a while. Last week included a day with 351 cases. That's the highest since June 9th, so it was like the high- most in, in like a month. So the seven-day moving average fell to a low of 163 cases on June 29th, um, but uh, rose to about 195 after that really big case day. So that, that was a pretty substantial increase in our moving average there. But since that really big day, there haven't been other really big days that followed it up. We did have the 4th of July holiday, so it could be an issue with testing, but uh, that the average has dropped to 172, the seven-day moving average as of yesterday. So in short, cases are mostly stable at a relatively r- low rate. So compared to, especially compared to where we were in the winter last fall, um, any time prior to, you know, this summer, um, we're much, much lower than we were. There are eight orange counties in Kentucky, and they're spread throughout the state. They're not clustered in any particular place. I think there's a couple that just border each other, but there are some in western, some in eastern, some in northern Kentucky. Um, There are also 19 green counties. So some of the smaller counties especially that, that haven't seen a case in a long time, they're green. Everybody else is yellow. And I think our overall incidence rate, like 3.8 per 100,000 people in the whole state. Louisville's cases remain very stable. Louisville had 192 cases last week, uh, which is slight, which is a slight week-over-week increase. But cases haven't been above 200 since late May, and they have never dipped below 150 since really the, the pandemic started. So, Louisville's also in a very stable place. Lexington, though, has uh, continued to decline in cases. They had down to 46 cases last week, and they have had, actually seen nine straight weeks of decline in the number of cases. Lexington and Fayette County actually also boast a top three vaccination rate in Kentucky, so that's probably not surprising. Louisville, I think, is either four or five, but Louisville has uh, interesting challenges with vaccines in terms of like specific parts of town um, not getting them, and, and so you don't have immunity in those specific places where the virus can spread. Um, Lexington has the lowest number of cases per month in June since April of 2020 when there was very little testing. So really, it's probably the case that June 2021 is the lowest number of COVID cases since the pandemic began if you were able to count all of the cases. So so that's good for Lexington. Uh, if you live there, you're a little safer than us. So good for you. 
Louisville's public health department identified five cases of the Delta variant. The, the actual number was probably much higher, but they found five cases of the Delta variant in the public health department. Louisville's chief health strategist, Sarah Moyer, recommended that Louisvillians start wearing masks again indoors and in crowded spaces. Vaccination rates continue to decline, decline slowly. Our weekly average of new vaccinations dipped to about 3,000, which which it was about 3,500 uh, a week ago. So uh, pretty, pretty, you know, de- a pretty uh, slow but gradual decrease, but a real decrease in the number of vaccinations per week uh, over time. So that's where we're at with COVID. Um, anything changed with you, Jasmine, in terms of uh, the COVID this week? I think I'm getting slightly concerned about the Delta variant. I mean, once you get rid of the mask mandate, I don't think there's any going back. So Sarah Moyer recommending masks. I I just don't think that we're going back to that. So that does make me nervous um, for potential, the potential increase in cases. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I do think what we've seen is that the vaccines we have are very, very effective against the Delta variant and all the variants that we've seen so far. But it does spread like wildfire in, uh, in, in people that aren't vaccinated. So the number of cases definitely increase. And we're in this weird space where unvaccinated people are at a huge risk. And the, you know, about half of us or a little bit higher in Louisville and even higher than that in Lexington that are vaccinated are basically safe. Um, there is a little bit of breakout, you know, yeah. I think it's like one tenth of a percent. And that means like for every 200 people that get it, uh, you know, two people that are vaccinated will get it, which means like one or two people who are vaccinated every day are getting it. Um, Louisville, I think, hasn't had more than five deaths in a week in more than like two or three months. So our death rate is very low. But yeah, it's a very odd situation. I did find myself in an interesting space, though. You know, we've been wearing masks quite a bit. And I, I, I had a little bit of a cold this week. Uh, you know, I'm got a nose situation and uh some post nasal drip uh no fever no coughing so i definitely not covid um but i wore a mask just because you know i was going to walgreens to pick up some cough drops because my throat hurts a little bit and i wore a mask because i don't want to get anybody sick with a cold either so i I think that that's a behavior that maybe we should start doing um and probably we will in the future or at least some of us will so yeah i i thought that that might be a thing going forward but I think that most people have already gotten back to normal so quickly. I think that I'll do that also, but I don't think it will become like a mainstream trend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be probably like, oh, those crazy liberals with their masks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. Yeah, I bet they believe in CRT also. That's probably where we're headed with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. One other quick hit before we get out of here, Jasmine, and that's that Kentucky Senator Tom Buford passed away on Tuesday of cancer. Buford was a Republican from Jessamine County and had served in the legislature since 1991. Buford's death, uh, you know, led to heartfelt sentiment from both Republicans and Democrats who genuinely seemed to respect and admire him. Um, I I thought it was really touching. He seemed like a really good guy. Uh, Obviously, uh, the only thing I knew about him was that he sponsored some bad bills. I'm not up in Frankfurt. I'm not like close with a lot of the Republicans, but he seemed like he was a good colleague. And I certainly hope that whoever replaces him um, is in the same vein as him. Uh, that's a, a very Republican district in the special election. You know, it'll happen, and uh, I hope that it's it's well contested. But whoever replaces him, I hope, is more like Tom Buford um, than a lot of the new people that have been coming into the legislature lately. So that's that. All right, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. 
they can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And we are part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>